Hey guys, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at New Song and get an opportunity to jump in on this new series we're in called Words with Friends. And this is a series that we um, are going through. We've taken a list of words and we're doing deep dives on those words. And these are words that are really common in our Christian vernacular. And uh, our desire in the series is simply to not do a word study of each of these, but to recapture and, and refocus on, on where the origins of these words come from. And, and in doing so, seek out all the value that there is in, in unpacking these words. Uh, last week, Grant started us off and he took the easy topic of talking about God and defining God. So as we saw that, um, he was using different passages through scriptures to show different characteristics about who God is and, and, and how he interacts with us. And there's one thing that was made very evident uh, in, in that process, and that's that God is vast, that he is so big. And, and the reality of how vast God is makes, makes, it, makes us realize that for us to think that we can ever fully comprehend or fully grasp the totality of God it is super overwhelming and in some ways kind of foolish to even attempt. But that doesn't discredit the value of pursuing a better and a more deep understanding of who God is. A.W. Tozer says that the most important thing about a person is the first thing that they think about when they think about God. And what he's speaking to in saying that is that he's talking about how important it is in how we act and what we do and how we view God. Because if God is the foundation of our faith, if he is the context by which we exist in this world, then our view of him greatly affects how we act and interact with the people we come in contact with and with this world. And, and my desire with the word that we're going through today is, is that this word might find its way towards the top of your mind when you think about God one of the first things that comes into your mind. And the reason that I want that is because through scripture, God has attributed this word, this way in which he functions to his name. And that word is love. And love's a tricky word, right? Like we see love in our culture and it, and it has a vast array of uses in our culture. I can stand here and say, I love bacon. I love sports. I love camping. I love steak. And I can also say, I love my wife and I love my kids. And instantly it's like, wait a minute, those two things can't be the same, right? There's gotta be some nuance there that we aren't grasping. And in that we start to see the fragility of our understanding of love. And, and we think of love in the context of, of relationships. And, and one of the ways that we define that or even even culture and art has defined it is, is in this infatuation, right? The person walks into the room and, and your stomach drops and you get butterflies in your stomach. And if they were to talk to you, you wouldn't be able to form a sentence because you're overwhelmed by the situation. And, and we see in those movies and, and experienced in our lives that although a relationship might start that way, that, that those feelings tend to flee and, and change and develop into something different. And, and again, we see some of that fragility so we want something more steadfast, like, like compatibility, right? This is just physics. It just fits, right? Like we complement each other or, or we have so much in common. 
And, and the problem with both of those is it's a two-edged sword. If we complement each other, that means we think differently and we come at things differently, which there's, there's an opportunity for tension. Or, or we have so much in common with one another that, that we start to compete and butt heads. And so we see that at the very least, this concept of love is confusing. And, and so we go to scripture and we say, well, what does scripture have to say about love? And the New Testament, which we're going to pull from today, uh, is actually written in Greek. And in Greek, there's a multitude of words that they have for the word love. And in scripture, there's four words in Greek that are used for love. And those words are eros, phileo, storge, and agape. And eros is, is that infatuation thing, right? It's that attraction. Uh, it's, it's defined by like the sensuality of it and, and it focuses on the physical. And, and phileo is one that we understand, right? Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And, and, and what that is, is it's this peer-based mutual adoration and respect and care for one another, like a brotherhood or a sisterhood. And then storge is is this unique love of a parent when they have a child. I remember when Lindsay was pregnant with Reed and, and I knew that I would love my kid. I, I knew and I was excited to see what that meant. And it wasn't until he was here and now with Chase and with Easton as well that, that I understand what that love is. I could have never described it before. I didn't experience it before, before it was my reality. And, and the Greeks saw that, so they attributed a new word to that. And the last one is agape. And this is the one that God attributes to himself. And it sets itself apart for a couple of reasons and in a couple of ways. And one of the ways is it's not a feeling base. The rest are, are things that you can internalize. They're pretty much feelings that you have. But instead of being feeling based, it's based in prioritizing or having a desire for what's best for the person that you're loving. And another distinctive characteristic about it is that agape is active. It's something that you act upon. It shows itself with action and tangible movement. And so we see agape as, as something that stands outside of what these other loves are. And this is the one that God describes himself as. And we're actually gonna be in, in the book of First John today. And this is the book that probably most densely uses the word agape because it's core to the theology of John in, in how we ought to view God and what we ought to do in light of that. So we're gonna be in John, 1 John chapter four today. And what we're gonna do to, to unpack the value of the word love, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about its origin, its manifestation and its purpose. And that's gonna give us, I think, a more robust view of what we mean when we talk about this word love. So in 1 John chapter four, starting in verse seven, it says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us 
and his love is perfected in us. One of the things I wanna draw attention to first in this passage is that this passage is bookend by two phrases, the same phrase just at the beginning and at the end. And, and what that does is it, give us, it gives us the focus of what John is trying to get to here. And that's let us love one another. And at the end it says, um, if we love one another. And that's really important because we need to view this passage in the context of what John is trying to say and, and what he's trying to get at as we process through this. Let us love one another for, for love is from God. So, so we start this process with the origin, right? Where is, what is the origin of love? And the origin of love is God. And that's important because like I said before, our love and our concept of love is different and it's nuanced and it's confusing. And, and I know this because when Lindsay and I were dating or, or engaged, I'm not sure when, we took this test called, uh, I think it was the five, five love, I forgot what it was. Um, but we, did, we took this test, five love languages. And it ways in which we feel love and ways that we show love. And it's really important for a relationship to know these things because I could, I could show my love through acts of service and, and come home from working and, and attack the kitchen and clean up. We have three kids, so clean up some of the chaos that is our life and, and take those things off her plate. But if her way that she feels loved is time spent, then, then I spend all day at work and I come home and, and then I go to the kitchen and then I go to the front room and I go to the garage and, and we lay our kids down and we've spent zero time together that day and two people who are trying to care for each other are missing it. So that's why it's so important for us to not have a nuanced understanding of love, but realize there's a consistent, stable concept of agape. And just to clarify, every time I say the word love in here, it tra it's translated from the word agape. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And this speaks to two things that are really, really important. The first being that we are born of God, that this is an identity piece of us. I've said it before that, that Romans clarifies that when we are before God, we are, we are considered just, we are considered righteous. Paul uses language like we're a saint. And, and we hear that God adopted us into his family. We're children of God and, and we have access to his inheritance. And that's important for us to know and realize that's our reality. But the next one, is that we know God. And, and this is important to, to realize because, because knowledge isn't just information. We aren't talking about knowing of God. James 2.19 says that even demons believe that there's a God and they shudder at that reality. So, so good for you for believing in it. But the difference in between uh, information and knowledge is something that's important to realize. I remember when, when I was in grade school, I used to take spelling tests every week and I would get 100% every time. And, and it's because I memorized the words the night before enough that I could do it the next day. If you know me at all, you know I'm not a great speller right now. So I didn't gain the knowledge of how to spell in that, but I regurgitated information I memorized. And there's a difference there. That, that what knowledge is, is information that you get that reforms and, and, and resets your reality in such a way that you use that as a context by which to interact and, and to function. And that's what we talk about when we talk about knowing God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
There's two things I wanna bring up in this. One is that uh, John here um, is using kind of, kind of a, a method that they use because they didn't have bold or italics to emphasize things. They would do two things. They would either repeat it or they would state the inverse so it was clear what he was talking about. And that's what he's doing here. He's trying to make a point. But the other, the, the way I read it when I first read this is almost as, as that we have the task that we're supposed to use this as a tool to critique whether someone is a Christian or not, right? Well, if they're a Christian, then they love. If they don't love, then they're not a Christian. And, and it's easy to fall into that. And, and we can do that if we take these verses alone. But when we put them in the context of what John's trying to get at, that we ought to love one another, and the fact that he's trying to define what love is so that we can do that, it, it takes on a different meaning. And we know that because at the end of this verse, it says, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. When I was reading this part of the passage, the, the we might live through him really stuck out to me because as, as I've walked with Christ, as, as I've done this whole faith thing, there, there's been this, this language that has kind of led me to believe that what Christ did on the cross was so that I could escape death. And what John is saying is that, no, it's not so you can escape death. It's, it's a source of life. And part of that, you're like, Joshua, that's kind of the, you know, just a different side to the same coin. And that's true, but we need to take it for the fact that John is focusing on this and what he's doing when he focuses us on the fact that he is the source of life. That in, that it says that God was made manifest among us, that he sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That if he's the source of life, if he is the manifestation of love, then we look at Jesus's life and, and we note the things that define the way that he loved. And, and we look at his life and, and there's some very clear markers. And one of the ways that he loved was sacrificially. We see that not just in the cross, but in, in the majority of ways that he interacted with people. We see, we see the concept of unconditional love. It was never based on merit or, or status or anything like that, that he loved someone. And we see that it's active and, and, and it's pursuant. And we see this play out in a couple of ways. One of the ways that we see this play out is we see it um, in him, in, or in the people whom he interacted with, Right? We see him enter a home with the unholy triad of, of prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. And he makes the choice to dine with them. And we see this representation of agape in that moment. And what he's doing is he's sacrificing his rapport. He, he could be critiqued for this. And the reason that he's doing that isn't to make a point, but what he's doing is he's validating them as people as people that have worth, that aren't defined, even as scripture defines them by their actions. And, and what he does in that is that he, he reinstates their humanity rather than, rather than this banner because of some of the actions and choices that they made that defines them in the culture they're in. And there's a beautiful artistic representation of this in the passion where Jesus, instead of being placed on the cross, climbs onto the cross. And it shows that love 
is agape is active, that Jesus isn't passively allowing all these things to happen for uh, to him and for us, but he's pursuing it. There is no other choice than this is going to happen. And it's active. And in verse 10, it says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Again, it's not that we love God because we know that that's confusing, that's nuanced and, and we don't always do it well. So this is good news that this isn't the love that we're talking about, but it's that God loved us in that he gave his son as the propitiation for our sin. Uh, another Christian word, right? It's only used a couple times in scripture and, and only by John, I think. And all that means is that the propitiation of sin is a sacrifice that appeases the wrath or the punishment that was due. And I think of it like this. I think of it, if you're think medieval and, and a knight fighting a dragon and the dragon is just raining fire on him and he has his shield up blocking it. And when the smoke and the, and, the, and the flames subside, there's no shield left. It's been completely burnt up. The only thing is the, is the band that he was holding it with and the knight is, is completely fine and unscathed. And that's the reality of what happened because sometimes I think we view Jesus and what he did is he stepped into the picture and he's like, poof, sin, gone. And, and hey, dad, how about we calm down with the wrath stuff? Like we just need to chill a bit. And that's not at all what happened. It was a violent, intense, crazy act that happened when Jesus became the embodiment of all sin and God, and God in his fullness of his wrath let that out. And that's what propitiation is. And, and I went into that because it's important for some of these other words we're gonna talk about like grace and salvation. If we don't have a clear view of the sacrifice that was made, we can't experience the fullness of those things that he was the propitiation of our sin. And John, in John 15, Jesus says, there's no greater love than this, than one who lays down his life for one's friend. And yes, he is, he's proclaiming his death that's about to come. But, but more than that, that Jesus didn't just lay down his life on the cross, but he laid down his life the moment he took his first breath as a child that he submitted to, to uh, worldly authorities and, and, and parental authorities and, and relied upon them for sustenance and growth and protection. And, and he did all that. So there was no way that we could say, you don't get it. You don't understand humanity. You are detached from us. And, and that's important because when we're talking about love and we're getting to what John wants us to do, we can't think of it just in light of the extreme, right? I, I know there's people in my life that I would easily die for. No, no question. If it was a simple transaction, I would give my life for. And, and that's almost easier, right? In the words of George Washington and Hamilton, when he's talking to Hamilton, he says that to dying is easy, easy young man. Living is harder. And, and there's, there's an essence of Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain in that. And what it's saying is that, that this love thing isn't just a big moment, a big response, but this love thing takes effort. And it's something that you do and laying down your life isn't a one-time act, but it's something that we're called to do over and over. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. 
if this is true, if we are really that night that, that the shield was completely destroyed and, and now there is nothing in between us, God's wrath is, has, been, has been sufficed in, in what Jesus did and there's nothing that is in between us and God can embrace us with love. If we are truly his children, if we are truly in his image, if these things are true, I use a phrase a lot that I'm sorry that I haven't unpacked, but this phrase is so important in my understanding of who God is. And I don't even remember where I heard it first, but it's this concept that we rest in the completed work of Christ in our life. And what that is in the completed work of Christ is, is that it's something that we rest in. It's our reality. And the thing is, is it's not a static reality. There's times where I do that and I feel like I can conquer the world and I have so much latitude to do other things but then there's times where I fall into my insecurities and, and I'm trying to prove that I'm a good husband. I'm trying to prove that I'm a worthy pastor and that I'm not just, I'm not a, a phony or making all this stuff up. And, and I'm putting so much effort in doing that that I, that I don't have much left for anything else. And, and I'm stating that it's not static because if we think it's static, we will always be in the ebb and we'll never be in the flow. And the flow is what God has for us that, that we can release all that so that we can do so much more that he created us for. And we see if this is true, then we ought to love one another. We ought to agape one another. We ought to pursue, actively pursue each other sacrificially and unconditionally for the good of that person with zero reciprocity in mind, with zero uh, thinking of what we get out of it, that this is what we're called to do. John 13, 35, Jesus again talking to his disciples, he says, they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. They will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. What he's saying is that if you wanna invoke my name, if you wanna point to me, if you wanna invoke my power and authority, you do that by the way that you love, the way that you agape one another, that that is me made manifest in that moment. And that's very, very important. And yes, he's talking to his disciples who will be the apostles and build the church, but that concept transcends that group. And we think of the why and the how does all this work. And that's answered in verse 12. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John, John's saying no one has seen God, maybe in a bush, maybe in a cloud. Yeah, but no one, we're all on the same playing field. No one's seen God. So, so we have a task here and that task here is to reveal God. And if we love one another, if we agape one another, that God abides in that. And the craziest part about this entire passage to me comes at the end and it says, and his love is perfected in us. And what that says to me is agape isn't just about God loving us unconditionally, sacrificially and, and actively, but it doesn't stop there. He does that so that we might agape others. And it's not until that action is happening, it's not until that reality is made manifest that it is perfected. Love isn't a list of actions that we do or we don't do. What love is, is a reality, a way of being, a mission that has, that has a focus, that has a goal, and that goal isn't completed until we participate. And so it's important for us to remember 
It's important for us to remember that, that we aren't bringing what we have to the table, but we're giving a gift that we were first given. But I wanna validate, as we wrap up talking about this word, I wanna validate a question. And, and this isn't facetious to ask this question. I really want us to contemplate it. And the question is, why? Why would I love, agape, do any of this stuff if, if for one, I don't know that I want to, two, I honestly don't think I'm capable. Why don't I just leave that to God? It's where, it's where it came from anyway. Why don't we just let God do that? And the question we're asking is, again, we have origin and we have how it's manifest and we need the answer to the purpose or we aren't gonna do it. Blind following an obligation will not push us through agape because it's too hard just to do it out of obligation. And, and I think it's important for us to ask these type of questions because if we don't, we aren't investing in the fullness of the foundation of our faith and we have to toil with it. And my thought through this passage and through this study and through my life and experience is there's two answers to that. One is that agape isn't about what you do but it is who you are. That if we believe that we are children of God, that we are actually image bearers of God, that agape is who we are. We're living into who we are when we participate in agape. And that's important. And you might think to yourself, Josh, I, I'm not patient enough. I have too much going. There's no way that I can do that. And, and I wanna validate that and say what you're speaking to is that there's been a narrative uh, put on your life that because of, that has been corroded and, and, and eaten away at and distorted because of the enemy that, that has detached you from who you are in such an extent that it makes it hard for you to think that you get to participate or are worthy to participate in something like this. And I wanna state that because we need to know that if we're gonna jump into this. It's not simple, it doesn't just happen. If you have that struggle in you, it means it's okay. You're part of this process. And that's why it's sacrificial because sometimes we have to set those realities aside for the sake of others. And the second answer to the why is that people are important. People are important. We're in a world that is filled with people who are in bondage to so many different realities. They're in bondage to expectation of performance, in bondage to expectation of how they look and how they act and what they do and what they achieve. And they're also in bondage to vices, uh, these addictions and the sin that has taken over their life because they were trying to escape from the weight of reality and, and the weight of trying to do everything right. And, and we're in a world surrounded by people who are struggling with this. And that we have a task and we have a responsibility and a responsibility isn't to throw information at them, to tell them what to think or how to think or what ways to act. It isn't bringing the moral standards so that they don't fall into the addictions, like show them this is the good thing to do and this is the bad thing to do. It isn't even to do nice things for them because love isn't those simple actions, but it's to agape them. It's to sit with them, it's to pursue them sacrificially, unconditionally, without anything expected in return for what's best for them. And when we do that, when we do that, we give them the freedom, 
We give them the ability to start to offload some of these chains and some of these burdens of this false narrative they have been told and experienced from their life so that God's light can start to shine in and say, I made you beautifully. And we do this and we prioritize it because they aren't the result of their actions, but they're a child of God. They're an image bearer of God. They're, there's something that God wants to know that he loves and wants to show love through them. And, and that's worthy of the difficulty and the toil and, and all the stuff that comes. So, so to... To wrap us up, and, and words are so important. That's why, especially at the end, I, I just want to be intentional with clarifying some things because when we get into the nuance of a word, it can start to feel froofy and it can start to feel um, even detached from our understanding and our context of Christianity. And, and what I mean by all this, that if we're to live into the Great Commission, go and make disciples, this is making disciples. If, if, we are, if we want a life that, that proclaims God, if we wanna be the light of the world, if we want to um, have a life that prioritizes the gospel, if we want that, then we ought to love one another. That is, that is how we show those things. That's how we, again, what Jesus said, that's how we invoke the reality of his name. That's how we invoke his power and his authority. That's how we point people to Christ. If we want lives defined by these things we've been told our whole Christian walk, then we ought to love one another. But I wanna, I wanna state the fact that this is hard and this is dangerous and this is difficult. So, so I wanna encourage us with this. What if we started with this community? What if we risked all that we have to risk to love, to agape with this community? We pursued each other with unconditional, sacrificial love for what's best for that person. And in doing so, we train ourselves that we actually can do that because it's of God and not of us. And, and we aren't gonna screw it up with all of our failures. And it's a part of the mission that we're on. So that when we find ourselves at school, at work, with our friends and family, that we're bold enough to, to agape them. And in doing so, we reveal something that they have been longing for for all their life, something that they have filled with, with all these different vices and all these different pursuits. And, and it's finally this hope and this answer that they've never seen before because, because agape doesn't exist outside of God and, and people are so longing for it. So what if we just practiced here so that we, in our efforts, of honoring this passage can love one another so that his love is perfected in us. Let me pray. God, I thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. And God, what I mean by that, I thank you for the opportunity to approach your word, to approach this word that you use to describe yourself and have a more full understanding of who you are. God, not so that we can feel good about our knowledge or feel good about what we know, but so that we can have this placed on our life and create a conviction in our heart that you have something more for us. God, I pray for the people that are listening that have spent their whole life being beat up 
by, by poor examples of love, by poor pursuits of their understanding of love, by ways that that has been broken and hurt and harmed and perverted. God, I pray that you would step into the situation and through some of these words, you would clarify what love is and who you are and that they have worth, not because of what they've done or what they've experienced, but because they are your children. And that God, in our ability to rest in the fact that you love us, that you would embolden us to, to manifest that, that you would embolden us to agape others, that you might abide in that and that your love might be perfected in our efforts to love one another. So I thank you that the source of this is not us, but the source of this is you that is, that is unending, that is eternal, that is perfect in your love. So we thank you for all these things in your name.